with kids that have had difficulty communicating, that social development can really lack if you're not getting help. Welcome to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, former school psychologist, currently a child psychologist, and a former parent of a child in Project's demonstration preschool. I also recently served as the board chair and am currently still serving on the Project Enlightenment Foundation as a board member. The goal of this podcast is to expand services to the young children in Wake County through parent education. In this 10-episode podcast series, we will include interviews with experts in early childhood education, psychology, and pediatrics to discuss topics including the importance of play, managing toddler behavior, language and motor development, kindergarten readiness, how to set up routines, and parent mental wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast. Today we are talking all about language and communication development with speech language pathologist Tracy Vale. If you are local to the area, you may have heard her name because she is um, a veteran speech language pathologist who is currently living her best life in her retirement. Um, But we have her on today to talk all things that I'm excited to ask her about. Um, But I want to start first, um, Tracy, by welcoming you and giving um, this background information. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So everyone, Tracy is a speech-language pathologist that's been working with children with autism since 1982 in a variety of settings, including public schools, private schools, homes, and private practice. She received postgraduate training and many treatment strategies, including the social communication, emotional regulation, and transactional support, known as CERTs, um, treatment and education of autistic and related communication in children, or the TEACH program at UNC, Applied Behavioral Analysis, Relationship Development Intervention, known as RDI, Developmental Individual Difference Relationship-Based Model, known as DIR Floor Time, the Picture Exchange Communication System, known as PECS, and the Early Start Denver Model, which basically is everything I can think of that you would be ever trained in to work with children um, with learning and growing um, on the autism spectrum. So Tracy is recently retired, and we are so fortunate to welcome her expertise to the podcast today. Okay, Tracy, so um, let's get started just talking about one of my favorite questions, which is what is the difference between speech and language development? Um, I know this is an easy question for us, but is probably the most common misconception among parents of young children. Yeah. Well, the main difference between speech and language development is that speech has to do with the sounds that kids produce. So their speech is their articulators, use of their teeth and tongue and lips and their ability to produce sounds and produce words. Whereas language is more all-encompassing. It's understanding the rules of whatever language that they've uh, grown up in, the the rules of the language, the use of, of those words, and the functional use of those words. So we have what's called pragmatics, which I think is the most interesting and most important part is why do we communicate with each other? Um, so even if you have 
a, a problem with maybe some of the rules of grammar, or maybe if you have a problem with a weak vocabulary, if you're still able to communicate and get your basic wants and needs met, the other things don't seem so big. But the nonverbal aspect is what's really struggling, uh, what causes a lot of struggle and social difficulties for children. So one of the things that happens, you know, way, way, way even before age two, which is when we um, start hearing words actually being spoken from our young children, is that early communication. So kids are communicating, as you know, way before they ever say actual words. So kind of take us through what parents of young children should be looking for even in their babies when we're talking about the nonverbal communication milestones that are happening when children are very young. So starting at like three months of age, we get that adorable social smile where, you know, we've all seen it in the grocery store. You'll see a little baby in a stroller and they, they just look up with you at you with that grin. And we immediately go into this motherese kind of thing to interact of, hi, baby, how are you doing? Um, and then they start doing a lot of things like reaching the joint attention where they even look at something and then the parent looks at it and, and might name it for them. And then they look back and smile or then they start pointing and reaching for what they want. And there's there's a lot of showing early on, you know, where they found something cool and they bring it over to show their parents. So those are all communication acts um, that we look for in little people. And those are the, the building uh, blocks, if you will, for the language to come in. Right. So kids are already connecting with us before they ever use words to connect with us. So those are all, um, like you said, that's the pragmatic language, the social connection that happens in very young children. Um, and some of this, uh, you know, I will see with when kids mimic our faces. And, you know, one of the things that uh, more recently I have seen that is really, really cute, which someone needs to do a social experiment on, is taking selfies with babies. I've seen some young parents um, do, like, show their young child the selfie camera and the, the both of them on it. And they're so excited to see themselves. So it's basically like, the, you know, what we would think of in traditional, you know, infant research is looking in a mirror, but um, but your parent is in there with you. So some of those connections are so cute to see, and they're all really um, healthy. And like you said, the, the foundation of the words that come later that are just the labels of the communication, right? Right. And, and well, the labels and also the gestures that help us accentuate. You know, there's some research that indicates up to 80 percent of communication happens non-verbally, right? So under connecting and teaching the baby from a young age that our bodies communicate a whole lot, right? Our facial expressions, our eyes, our gestures, they all are part of this whole total communication uh, process. So it's a it's a good foundation for them that the, the words don't matter as much as is sometimes the tone of voice and, and all of that that's coming with it. Right. Absolutely. So what should parents be looking for um, kind of between that 18 months and three years old as we we go from that kind of nonverbal social communication through the the actual words start emerging? Yeah, well, usually the first words come in around uh, one year. Right. We start getting simple words and and we'll get uh, usually like duplicated syllables. So a kid might do a lot of mama, dada 
Baba, you know, those kinds of things where we're not getting the differentiation between the, the syllables, but just some that are repetitive. Um, and then they start gradually changing. So we, we get the speech development and the language development and that nonverbal kind of all coming together for a huge explosion between 18 months and three years. I mean, that's, you know, many three-year-olds, you know, by three years, you know, I kind of, the rough rule of thumb is one single words at one, by two, we want two word combinations, and by three, we should have some basic simple sentences. But there's a whole um, range of what's normal within that, right? So, you know, I'm not hard and fast about if your baby's not talking by one, get them in, right? Because there's a lot of other things that go into that. But if we, we do want to see words and it, it, we want to see a wide range of functions of those words. So kids that are being able to comment when they're out on a walk, you know, and point things out doggy, you know, or looking for um, getting their needs met. They tell you when they want milk or going up and, and interacting with a friend on the playground. You know, we want to see the beginnings of those kinds of things when uh, asking questions, that, that, what that, that's a huge one because that allows the child to learn from his environment. Anything he's interested in, they can point to and that, and someone tells them the, the, the name of it. So we're looking for what an awesome tool for them to have, right? That they see something they don't understand. But if I say this word, this person with me explains it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's very important and very valuable for kids. And so what would you say, I get this question a lot, what would you say about signing around these ages? And, you know, I think some parents um, might have the misconception that that signing, um, they would cause kids to be, you know, too reliable on it and words won't develop. But in what situations is, is teaching your children some simple signs helpful? Uh, any situation. I had six kids or six grandkids and all of them, you know, we, we did some, some simple signs with early on, but I think, you know, any time a child, anything that can help a child communicate, because again, the communication is the important part, much more important than the words. But if they don't have the words and they're getting frustrated with the communication, absolutely using some signs to, to help them. Plus there's, there's some research that indicates that the motor movements will help with the verbal. Um, I have never, well, there's there's one study that indicates that, uh, specifically done with children with autism, that has indicated that the um, child's verbal development was a little bit delayed when they introduced uh, some augmentative communication. But all of the, the rest of the research overwhelmingly says it helps. And it makes more sense, right? Now, if it, mm-hmm. human beings do take the path of le- least resistance, so they're going to do what's easiest for them. So if I can sign and tell you that I want milk and that works all the time, and then I hear you say milk when you give me the milk, then I'm going to learn milk pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. But the if I don't have a way to communicate that and I'm just going and banging my head on the door, then... I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna get that connection between getting the milk and hearing the word milk, or as quickly, or be at a state that I can even learn. Right? Because sometimes you learn, exactly. you, you get so frustrated that you can't learn what's going on in the moment. So, as a psychologist, that just reminds me of um, you know the the multi sensory integration that we need 
to learn things faster, you know, with with a motor movement, with a sign, with an object symbol and hearing the word and, you know, getting social access from the caregiver to get the thing. All those things are getting integrated in that moment and it's working and you're going to then get you know, a positive feedback in your brain about that. And then you're going to do it again versus like you said, getting frustrated. And then your whole, whole brain is busy being frustrated and trying to regulate and no learning can happen at that moment. So um, it's important, like you said, for to use whatever means you can to help connect and build the skills. Now I do. And probably anybody that knows me knows that I have a, a strong aversion to teaching generic or general signs too general of a sign. I, I wrote a, a paper called No More More. <laughs> that, <laughs> no More More. So tell us about that. Well, if the sign more, all that really says is want, right? I want something. You don't, you don't know what it is because most kids, you know, you could say more if you've had, if, say you're giving them some carrots, right? You could sign carrots and then the next time they wanted carrots, they could say carrots. But if they did this, you wouldn't know they wanted carrots, right? You would just know they wanted something, right? So it's right. it's too general and it can lead. It's really no more valuable than a reach or a point, right? It doesn't add any value and it causes, you know, in, in my 40 some years of practice, you know, I'd have parents come in and say, oh, yeah, we tried signs. They didn't work. What signs did you teach? More and potty. Well, the kid doesn't want to go potty. That's for you. That's not, they don't care that if they're going in their diaper or not. So that they're not motivated to learn that sign and more is invaluable to them. So that doesn't mean that, that, um, that the signs are not valuable. It just, or the, that signs won't work. It's just which ones you choose. So I'm very specific about teaching the things that matter to the child that they're, they want, or they point out, or they show you just like you would for words, right? That's not the first word I teach kids. It's, you know, I might teach yummy. I might teach cookie. I might teach milk, mama, doggy, ball, whatever they're interested in, in the world. Those are the words that I want to teach them. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about speech and um, the understanding of speech, because that's usually the first concern parents have, um, even though sometimes there can be nonverbal concerns of, in communication way before that. But let's let's specifically talk about speech next. So if a parent cannot understand their child, this can be the most frustrating. So like how long should a parent work on this or try to tolerate this? Or at what point um, should they seek out help if they cannot understand their child's speech? I think seeking out, to me, seeking out help comes whenever there's a breakdown in communication, when there's frustration, right? So if the child is getting to the point where they're trying to say stuff and they're really attempting, but they're not able to communicate it, the parents don't understand them, it's time to get help whatever age they are, because it can be, uh, we can help with nonverbal if the, if the speech isn't really a problem. But articulation and speech problems, um, as, we're, as we're working on those, we'll give them another way to communicate to, to ease that frustration. Um, like you alluded to before, that frustration is the tipping point, because when you're in that anxious state or frustrated state, it's tough to learn anything and we can get kids stopped trying to communicate because why bother, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then 
then everything else slows down. We get them to stop in. They stop interacting or trying to interact with peers because their peers don't respond to them. Um, those are the kinds of things that we want to make sure we avoid. So getting help early is really, really important if you see any signs of frustration. Yeah. So what are some examples of when when children are frustrated um, and parents are having to guess what what they want, what they need? Um, what are some examples of things parents can try or can do at those young ages to help ease that frustration or or to maybe try to guess more correctly? Yeah. Well, the first thing I say is is I I hear you want something or I hear you're trying to tell me something. Can you show me? You know, so let them know that what they're saying matters, right? And you really want to understand them. And don't have them just repeat it over and over again because they don't know how to fix it, right? So if you say, say it again, say it again, say it again, they don't know how to say it any different than they're saying it or they would be, right? Um, but if you say, show me, and let's take, for example, um, a, a child that says, uh, ada, ada, and you don't know what is it? Can you show me what it is? And they bring you into their room and they they point up to their crib and there's maybe a stuffed dog in there, right, that that you think they wanted. Ada. Oh, okay. Can you try this way? Da. And they say da. Yeah, doggy. So I'm not giving them the whole word to try to say because that's going to be frustrating too if they're having a, a difficult time saying it. But you want them to be successful. Da. And then you repeat the entire word after doggy. Sometimes I'll even just go down to saying the vowel. Ah, you say ah, ah, if they're able to imitate. And then I might say doggy. So I'm going to break down the word. I'm not going to just say it. You know, if we slow things down, stretch them out. And then the next time, if they say da, oh, is it your doggy you want? Or maybe it's a doll. I wonder, is it a doggy or a doll that you're talking about? Can you show me, right? And then you can gradually build up. But you've got to let them know that their communication matters. Um, and then you've got to give them uh, a way to show you that's hopefully that nonverbal stuff that we worked on all up until the words came in the first place, right? Uh, and then mm -hmm. they've got that nonverbal plus the you're adding the verbal on top of it. Yeah. So the example you're giving makes me um, think through that child's, that hypothetical child's skills of they're not able to, ha they're not use having the words to explain and they're not able to explain what they're talking about, but they're understanding a pretty long sentence. Are you trying to say this? Can you take me to this? So tell us a little bit more about receptive language versus expressive language. Yeah. That's a great question. So receptive language is understanding what um, other people are saying, right? And expressive language is the ability to use those sounds, the words, the gestures, all of that communication. So understanding typically is much stronger than expressive language is for, for most children. It doesn't always work that way for kids with autism, because they sometimes can learn to just imitate what they've heard in long sentences that they, even they don't understand what they're saying. So they're they're kind of cut and pasting, right? But for mo most children, they do learn to understand um, language before. 
But if you if your child looked at you and didn't understand, if you said, show me what you're talking about, just putting your hand out and saying, show me, you know, and putting your hand out so they know that you want them to t- you that you want them to take them somewhere, then they can yeah. usually communicate that. Understanding language is a whole different ball game, and it's a lot harder to measure, right? Um, I'll have parents say that I think they understand everything that I'm saying, and maybe they do, but that's not always the case. It's something we have to kind of assess uh, more in a more standardized fashion to really get to pinpoint what they do and don't understand. Right. So um, like you said, most children um, will understand more than they can express in kind of typically developing um, brains. But then let's talk for a minute about um, children who are diagnosed with autism, because sometimes the, the flip of that is true for them. For instance, they they have a lot of words, but the words are missing that underneath foundation of um, communicating something. So um, this is where um, I'd love to hear your examples or thoughts about echolalia or hyperlexia and things like that, explaining what that is to those listening. Yeah, so I I talked about it a little bit. I referred to it a little bit about being like a cut and paste kind of thing. So, um, for example, a, a child might watch, and this is very common, that they watch the favorite show over and over and over again, or even watch a, a certain section of a favorite show that they want to watch over and over and over again. So you get a lot of repetition, and they might be able to um, repeat that entire phrase or sentence, but it's not under the normal conditions. And each word doesn't have a separate meaning for them, right? So they don't necessarily understand it. If I And I'll give you an example. I had a, a little child that one he would get upset, he would say, oh, no, Thomas fell in the ravine, right? And that was his way of saying, I'm frustrated, right? Mm-hmm. But he he would, and sometimes he wouldn't even use it under those conditions, but he was kind of mimicking something that was frustrating to Thomas, right? His eyes spun around and he clearly was not happy, but he doesn't understand. If I showed him a picture of a ravine, he wouldn't know what it was, Right. If mm-hmm. um, if I said, oh, no, uh, the apple or the vase broke, he wouldn't understand what that meant. Right. It was just this big chunk of information that in his mind met, meant something un- unpleasant or frustrating had happened. Right. Right. So if a child is using one of those repeated phrases, um, sometimes it can be um, I know in my my work, um, it can be sometimes soothing or a child can use it in excitement but it usually it connects with an emotion. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. Yeah, and you can yeah. and you can model that for them. Ah, oh, it sounds like you're upset or it sounds like you're frustrated or giving them the words that other people might use and understand because that's the hard thing. There's not that there's anything bad about that, right? It's just that right. if they go into right. kindergarten and they say, "Oh no, Thomas fell into the ravine." The teacher's not going to understand that they're frustrated or there's something in their world right now that we need to look at that might be upsetting to them because that's not how 
the conventional communication or the rules, which what language is, right? It's rules that a society has agreed upon. (laughs) Agreed upon, I don't know if that's the right word, but one that we've uh, (laughs) gotten to consensus of that we use to communicate with each other. So I think, you know, what my goal is for any child is to see what the experience of their world is like and then give them the best and easiest ways to communicate that to other people and be successful because then you get into that, like you said, that positive loop where, you know, that's been reinforced. This works. I'm going to do that again in the future, right? This doesn't work. I'm not going to do that. And if you get a lot of this doesn't work, I'm not going to do that, then you get that withdrawal and that that beginning to um, shut down. Uh, attempts to communicate. And that's the last thing we want. Right, right. And so I think it's um, pretty clear to most parents of young children um, when to be concerned about articulation or the clarity of speech. But um, what are some indicators for delays in communication development um, kind of before that age three, like we're talking about, when about that foundation of this communication? What should parents be looking for? Well, uh, again, you want them to be looking for um, the number of words that their child is using. We want to make sure that they're communicating when they can't be understood. We want to make sure they're using lots of gestures. Um, We want to make sure that they have ways to uh, avoid breaking down, uh, breakdowns in communication Uh, and, and, and a motivation. You know, sometimes uh, it's fun for me as a grandma now, right? But I can remember raising four children and, you know, working full time and, you know, coming home and trying to get dinner ready. And that's when everybody wants to tell you their stories about what happened during the day of, of making sure that that's happening and that we're reinforcing that of just sitting down and saying, yeah, let me know, tell me about it. What, what went on? Dinner can wait, <laughs> you know? Um, mm-hmm. But you want to be looking for that motivation to communicate, that motivation to engage and be around other people and to wor- use words and gestures to communicate. So if a child is not initiating those, um, you know, we call them social overtures, you know, not reaching out to initiate a social interaction, even without words, like pointing or coming over to you and handing, showing you something, um, those are some things to look for. And so what can parents do if they're seeing some of those things to promote more language development? Well, some of the show me is a great example, but even these nonverbals, what can parents do? The most important thing is to get down on the floor and play with them, you know, and look at what it is that they're interested in. And what I what what I always think of is, especially for little ones, is I want to create a repetitive and predictable pattern in what we're doing, right? So, and I'll give you an example that just happened with my grandkids. Uh, the parents are all partying and I'm on the, the with the raft with the, the these three little people. They're two, two and a half. Um, and one of them can't talk at all. As mom said, so she can't talk. So I'm like, oh, this will be interesting to see what happens. And we just set up this little game where we got on the raft and then we all pretended to sleep. I wasn't on the raft. I was in the water. But I put my head down and wake up. There's a ship coming. And we started shaking the raft. And and then we I tipped it over and they went falling in the water. So we did this same routine like until I was really bored. But each time 
that there was a, you know, I would delay, I would delay. And finally, this one little boy said, wake up. The one that said his mom said he didn't sleep because he wanted to get on with the game, right? Wake up. There's a ship coming. And the other one said, boat. And, you know, there was, so they're now being part of that because I built up this anticipation and this expectation. And then I'm playing dumb and doing silly things. I think of Mr. Wiggles, right? That's always doing silly things. And then they have a reason to want to communicate with me because they want that routine to continue. And eventually, you know, for them, they want to go in the water. They want me to tip over the raft so they go in the water. So I, whatever it is that they're wanting to do, I can build up a, a predictable pattern of interaction, even if it's, um, you know, playing with marbles of rolling them and then putting a block there to hit something. So it, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't, you know, I don't have a bunch of toys on the boat. So when the kids come to visit, we make games with whatever we have. It might be a toilet paper tube and a piece of tissue, right? <laughs> or, um, you know, napkins that, that fly off our heads or whatever it is that is around. You just want to create those routines and those patterns to engage them, right? And make it not so much your agenda, but make it into something predictable and fun. And you'll see that that they're looking at you, that eye contact, if you're not waking up, you know, they're, they're looking like, what's wrong with you? They might tap you. They might then start using some of these nonverbals if they can't use words yet. Um, some other things you can do is just model it, like playing games where you're not talking. What I'll do is, you know, I'll just use nonverbal communication. I'll shake my head in exaggerated facial expressions like, oh, I'm so sad. Or, you know, big shoulder shrugs or big points. So I, you know, sometimes taking the words out of it will make it even more valuable. They'll see that the, the true value of the, um, of the, the word or the, the nonverbal communication that they can then layer the, the words onto. I, I think about it this way, that we always have a container, right? We have a container of social interaction, and within that container of social interaction, we have patterns that we can both recognize, right? And then we have words that are layered on top of that. So the words are really the, the almost the least important part of the whole mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I have um, this one game. You probably have it too in my playroom called Kids on Stage. And it is a um, charades game, but for very young children. And you can play this game without talking. Um, and it is so fun because the the charades are just animals or, um, you know, actions like throwing a ball and things like that. And it is so fun to play because it, it is structured. So for any parents who are listening to Tracy and thinking, well, I don't know really how to play. I don't know what to do when I get down on the floor with my child. You know, some of these um, structured games you can get can be really fun. Another one I love is um, Headbands Junior. Um, where you put the, the animal on your head and, and, um, and if you're working on perspective taking with your child, you know, I can't see what's on my head and they have to help me understand by describing what's on my head. And, and there, there are lots of games out there that you can use to help structure play with your kids. Absolutely. Yeah. If they're, if they're the, you have to watch the age level. And sometimes it's funny with, with kids on the spectrum, I'll get 
you know, I'll put the thing on my head and the headbands game and they'll just tell me what it is. <laughs> Getting, then right, understanding. and that's the skill you're working on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit more um, about, I've, I've always wanted to ask you this question and, and connect. Um, we've talked about speech and language connection, but tell me a little bit more about language and reading connection because we get this question, I get this question a lot um, where, Kids will struggle with reading comprehension later on. And my first question for them usually is, what did their social play look like back when they were three? Um, what did, how does that pragmatic language, that communication, um, serve as a foundation for, for reading comprehension later on? Yeah. You know what? That is such a huge, huge uh, question that, that communication, language and communication and reading are so intertwined on so many levels. So first of all, we have, you know, kids that have historic problems with speech sound development, oftentimes will have trouble with what we call phonemic awareness, or just being able to kind of hear the differences in sound that might have been part of the problem they had learning sounds in the first place. So they have that, that difficulty understanding sound symbol relationships and blending sounds into words to even get the word attack skills, right? To, to be able to sound words out to read. So that can be an issue. Then if we have had children that have had um, limited vocabulary and then reading those words, they don't understand what the words mean. So they might have a vocabulary deficit, right? And then the social aspect if you haven't ever been in the social setting or uh, a similar social setting or understand the, the big picture about what's happening in a passage, right? If you don't have the life experience because you didn't engage in this in similar social interactions, then you're not going to understand that part either, right? So we've got the, the macro all the way up to the, you know, the, the, all the way down to the micro issues with reading and language and how that all combines um, to cause reading problems later on. Yeah. So this social play we're talking about of just get on the floor with your child and, and play with them. And, um, you know, you may think we're just describing a simple game of hide and seek or, you know, of guessing a charades game, but those are the life experiences you're talking about. So that when your child is reading something a few years from now about friends playing a game, they're pulling from these experiences in their mind, um, these these play memories that they have, and it makes sense to them because of their life experience. Um, and I'll just say, you know, this is something that I know is on every parent's mind of a young child right now who has had probably less social experience um, than they would have had had COVID not happened. I just want to remind everyone, you know, don't you can't compare yourself to anyone else because absolutely everyone has been in this situation. So yes, some of the um, young children are lacking a little bit in experience because they've just had um, their parents or their siblings or maybe, you know, a small group in their neighborhood to, to play with and some some years of pretty formative, you know, twos, threes, and fours social practice. But 
it, it will come, right? I would love to hear your opinions on that, Tracy. I know we don't have a crystal ball, but what are your thoughts on some of these kids who have, have missed some social practice? I mean, it's not some of them, it's it's all of them, um, have, have missed out on some social practice had COVID not happened. Well, I think that the important thing is, is getting those experiences made up for. And I mean, I, I know we're in a technology uh, age, right? And I probably sound like, yeah, another one of those old ladies that just doesn't get it. But um, put the phones down, you know, and get out, get out in the world. It doesn't, if I'm still uncomfortable in indoor spaces, but going for a walk, and experiencing the trees and the flowers and and all that you know especially now it's absolutely gorgeous but experiencing the world and making sure you're watching your child and engaging the other thing is is getting having kids come over you know just smaller groups not so much um big groups at once because that may be overwhelming after they've been you know in their isolated family bubble having one child come over for a play date and playing with them, right? So you can kind of foster. And and when you're doing that, being a kid, not not trying to direct or tell anybody what to do, but sitting down and, you know, if we're playing in the little kitchen that I maybe you're a customer that wants to order some food and they're working together to to cook it. Um so making sure that you're you're starting to build those those skills back up and and really saying, you know what? I recognize that this is a deficit for all of us, you know, um, and not jumping back in. I know even for me, you know, after all of that time, and of course, I've been on a boat, so i am really been isolated, like me and my husband, but I've had to be careful about how much socialization I do. I, I need my alone time, right, that we've all kind of gotten used to this hibernation mode, and to, to not expect, you know, that it's going to be a wonderful time at this great big birthday party with 30 kids or on the playground that we're going to just jump right back into what we used to do all the time. There's going to be that that period of time that we need to build it up. Um, and part of that, I'm, I'm just going to say, too, that with kids that have had difficulty communicating, that social development can really lack if you're not getting help because think about it you know if, if you go up to a kid on the playground and you try to to say something and they don't respond to you you're not gonna be able to play and jump in so teaching teaching them that you don't even have to use words just jump in and do whatever they're doing so doing some coaching when you do go back in what do you think they're playing hmm what could you do what could be your role looks like they're chasing maybe we could you know and you're just giving them some ideas of things that they could do to jump into that play without having to use a lot of words yeah and I you make such a great point um I love what you said about you know don't have expectations that your child who hasn't you know been around but a small group of people can jump back into like a big group birthday party those are very overwhelming situations for typically developing young children that you know their sensory systems are still developing their their nervous system is still probably pretty sensitive given that they haven't had a lot of world experience with um you know moving around their community a whole lot um, so taking it slow, and and it goes back to what we said earlier in our conversation about when we're overwhelmed, um, and I, of course, can get on my soapbox about this, but when we're overwhelmed and frustrated, we can't learn. 
And um, learning to communicate is one of the most important jobs of a young child. And as their parent, um, I just think of, you know, it's our job to just create the the most um, comfortable and um, open situation for that communication to evolve. So, you know, what are your thoughts um, about, you know, just kind of final thoughts for parents on creating a, just the most optimal situation for your child, not for every child, but thinking about how to figure out what your child needs to um, develop speech and language um, in the best way they can? Oh, I think observing, you know, just watch, keep them with you. Kids can help make dinner. They can help wrap presents. They can help garden, you know, so whatever it is, you know, have them with you and watch and see where is the breakdown happening for them? What is, what do you think is interrupting their ability to communicate? Is it desire to communicate? Well, if so, then we need to be more fun. So they want to be with us and want to communicate. Um, if they, if they're having trouble with sounds, then like I said, teaching them a lot of those nonverbal verbals or giving them a way to communicate that, that doesn't depend on sounds is going to be important. If it is vocabulary, then doing a lot of reading of books and a lot of uh, naming of things that are in their environment with them um, that they're showing an interest in. So I think it's really observing, you know, really watching to and, and to try to think. Now, I'm not saying that parents should be able to do this all by themselves, you know. Even if you want to get a consult, you know, and have a speech pathologist come out and work, you know, observe or do an assessment to see what can I do, um, what where is the specific breakdown? If I'm not finding it myself, what can I do? What professionals can I enlist in helping me figure out what that is so that I can um, kind of maximize them at home? Yeah, and just as a reminder for um, anyone listening in Wake County, this is what the what Project Lightman does. They offer screenings. They offer, um, you know, consultations in your child's preschool setting to observe and, and see if there are any um, concerns for your child or your child needs to go ahead and start receiving some early intervention services. So it's a wonderful resource for everyone locally. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Raising Young Children in Wake County brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation, which you can find at projectenlightenmentfoundation.org. We would love for you to subscribe to this show and share it with your friends and fellow parents. We're all in this together, and we hope we can make a difference in the lives of parents and children. Thanks to KNL Gates, a global law firm with offices in Raleigh and RTP for their generous contribution to make this podcast happen. Thank you to our sponsors, the Empire Gives Back Foundation and Empire Eats, which includes the downtown Raleigh restaurants, City, Gravy, Raleigh Times, Mecca, and the Pit Authentic Barbecue, bringing great food to the community as well as supporting local causes, especially those that touch the lives of children. Thanks to BHDP, an award-winning international architectural firm, which is recognized for intelligent, innovative, and inspiring design solutions in architecture, planning, and interior design. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we'll see you again soon on Raising Young Children in Wake County.